0: If you would, let's pray as we come to the Word this morning. Our Father, we are like children who don't know when to come out of the rain. We are in need of knowledge from above, or we would be ignorant. We're in need of wisdom, or we would be fools. We're in need of Your light, or we would be steeped in darkness. We're in need of the heat of Your truth, or we would be trapped in coldness. And so we pray this morning that as Your Word is read and as it goes forth, that You would minister to us, children who are often ignorant and foolish and dark and cold, may we know that we have heard from You. In the strong name of Christ Jesus, we pray, Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, this is the holy inerrant, sufficient word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. This week, we begin a new series, and we're going to look at the book of 1 Timothy together. We're going to spend our time in this book all the way to the beginning of June. So we'll spend the spring here in the book of 1 Timothy. But even to do that, we have to go at it at quite a clip, and so we have to go through quite a number of verses each week, even to finish by the beginning of June. So like this morning, we're going through 11 verses, which is an awful lot for an epistle, but we will do our best. And we also have to do a little bit of an introduction uh, to this book this morning as we begin First Timothy. So let me do a little background for you about First Timothy. First uh, Timothy, of course, is written by the Apostle Paul. He most likely wrote this uh, between his first and second imprisonment. His second imprisonment will lead to his martyrdom. 1 Timothy falls into the category of books that we call the pastoral epistles. That is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They are called the pastoral epistles because Paul was writing to Timothy and Titus, who are pastors. And he is writing to them, so they are called Epistles. He is writing to them in their local context and he is writing to encourage them and to exhort them about the ministry that is before them to help equip them for pastoring these local congregations. But though Paul is writing to Timothy here in 1 Timothy, it's very clear that he knows and he intends this book to be read by the wider church. And you can see an example of that, even how he begins this book, where he identifies himself as, quote, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. If he was simply writing to Timothy, he wouldn't need to introduce himself in such a way. No, he knew and he expected and he aimed at the larger church reading this letter that he was sending to Timothy. And so even as he is writing to Timothy... And he is writing to Timothy in his local context. Paul has the greater church in view. And as he thinks about the greater church, I wonder what you and I would think he would write about. What would be his focus? What would be the things that he wants to communicate and exhort and encourage? Well, for Paul, if I was to boil this letter down to three things, it would be these three he is going to exhort and encourage about church government. He's going to encourage about faithfulness, and he's going to encourage about godliness in the local church. Maybe not exactly what we would choose, but that's what he chooses. This morning, as we'll see in this book, he is going to focus in these first verses, this first section, and he'll carry it through the rest of the book, but faithfulness. Now, why is there the need for Paul to write to Timothy? The answer is simply because Timothy isn't with Paul. And so, Timothy, who has normally been with Paul, has been Paul's traveling companion. We could, I think, even say that, that Timothy is Paul's closest associate. He is often with Timothy. He is a disciple of Timothy. He's the man that Paul has often relying upon. And yet, Paul uh, Timothy isn't with Paul. As Paul tells us in verse 3 there, when he goes off to Macedonia, he chose to leave Timothy behind. He departs without Timothy because Timothy is needed there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey. And it was an important city. It was a A place of worship. It was a cultural influencer. It was a place of trade. It was a place that Paul knew well. He had gone to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. And as he had gone to Ephesus, he had gone there to preach the gospel. And most likely, the church that Timothy is pastoring is a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. But he didn't just plant this church. Paul pastored this church. We know that he remained in Ephesus for at least two years, possibly as long as three years, discipling and pastoring these people here in Ephesus. And so he knows them very well, but as he journeys away to share the Gospel in new places, he leaves Timothy behind. Why? Because Paul has the kingdom in view. He adores Timothy. He will often speak in his letters about needing Timothy. Timothy, come to me. I need you. And yet here he goes without Timothy. Why? Because the church has a greater need in Paul's mind than his own. They need Timothy to remain. And they need Timothy to remain because every local church needs faithful leadership. And this church in Ephesus needs faithful leadership. As Paul now writes back to Timothy, we see in these opening verses that he charges Timothy to be a faithful leader in this local church. And he does so. I want to look at it in two ways this morning. He tells them what is worth standing for. And he tells them what is worth standing against. He tells them what is worth standing up for, and he tells them what is worth standing up against as he seeks to be a faithful leader in this local church. Now, Timothy needs this. I want to remind you that Timothy is a very young man. Paul will say in Timothy chapter 4, he'll say, don't let them look down on you because of your youth. He was a young man. There is wisdom in being quiet. There's wisdom as a young person yielding to older people in the faith and older people in life. But there's also a time where there is a necessity to stand when it's needed. And so Paul is encouraging this young man who is most likely in his late 20s or early 30s that he needs to stand when it is needed. He's not only young, but he also appears to lack confidence. There's a timidity about Timothy. In Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul will remind him, God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. We'll see later in this book that Timothy had stomach problems and most likely he had stomach problems because he was an anxious person. I think evidence of that is in 1 Corinthians when Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth and he's sending Timothy to them. He will say to the church there in Corinth, he'll say to them, put Timothy at ease. He's a young man. And he's not just a young man, but he lacks confidence. I think he's rightly been often referred to in history as Timid Timothy. That's just who he is. He's not a super apostle. He doesn't have the boldness of Paul. He doesn't have the zeal of Peter. He is a regular guy. And yet, he's to lead faithfully. Despite his age, despite his newness as their pastor, despite his young tenure at Ephesus, despite his lack of confidence, he was to provide this church with faithful leadership. And sometimes... That means standing up. Now, what does that have to do with you? What does all this have to do with you? Well, I think a lot of things. I want to press some of those home this morning. But maybe it help just to think about this together just at the very start, is that almost every single one of you in this room is a leader in some capacity. You're a leader because you're a husband, or you're a leader because you're a mother or a father. You're a leader because you're a grandparent. You're a leader because you're an aunt or an uncle. You're a leader in your friend group or with your roommates, or you are ordained to an office here in the church, or you are involved in some ministry here in the church where you exercise some degree of leadership. For all leaders. At least most of us in some sphere or another. And we want to be faithful leaders. First, there are things we're standing for. Faithfulness is needed. Why? Because the stakes are so very high. The stakes are eternal. There are things we're standing for. And what is that? Eternal truth. There are some who are never willing to stand for everything. Their sword is never, ever brandished. And that is a lack of faithfulness. There was a new teaching here in Ephesus. People love what's new. Apple comes out with something new. People will wrap all the way around their building and down the block because there's something new and they want to be the the first to get it. A woman invents something new or a man comes up with some new theory and they are hailed and they are celebrated because it is something new. It appeals, it draws, but it shouldn't in the church. There's virtue in holding on to old things when they are true. And there's nothing more worth holding on to than the truth that Timothy has been entrusted with. Stand up for this, Timothy. This is worth fighting for. This eternal truth. Paul says in verse 3, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul uses the term here where all he does is he takes two different Greek words and he just kind of sandwiches them together. Many scholars think he just made up this word. Nobody else uses this word. He takes the word for teaching and then he takes a word that you know, hetero. You know what that means because we still use it in English. And he just takes that word hetero and he affixes it to the front of of teaching. There are those that are teaching different things. They have a different teaching. It's different from what? Well, it's different from what Timothy had received. It was different from what Paul had preached, the apostolic gospel. They were preaching and they were teaching something different. Paul will say in 2 Timothy, Timothy, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The deposit. He'll go on to call it there in 2 Timothy. He says it's the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the church even by this time had a corpus of truth. It had identified this is the core of our faith. This is the gospel. This is what is true. Paul will detail it there in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I had also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He The Son of God became flesh and He lived and He died a propitiatory death for sinners. He was buried and He was raised on the third day. This is eternal truth and this is worth standing up for. Stand up for this. It was was identifiable because Jesus had spoken it. Because the apostles had proclaimed it and now Paul is writing about it. You see, there's defined boundaries. This is the core. This is our eternal, lasting truth. This is the center of our faith. And that means that there are things that are outside of those boundaries that can be opposed to that, Paul is saying. And there can be things that just simply distract from that. But there's just a a different emphasis than that. You see, what was happening here in Ephesus was not that they were teaching some kind of heresy like the Galatian heresy. They weren't teaching that there was some other way to be saved. Some kind of works righteousness. That's not what they were doing. Rather, what they were doing was that they were clouding the truth of the gospel. They were just taking it one degree off. They were Causing people to focus on just a little something else. They weren't denying the Gospel, but they were trying just to focus on one other thing. Just an addition. Just a hair off. Just a degree off. And Paul is saying they've clouded the whole thing. Unashamedly, unashamedly, We will keep preaching and teaching the Gospel here at URC. Unashamedly. He sang it this morning, show me Christ. You never need less of Christ. You've never graduated from the school of Christ. You've never had too much of the Gospel. We need the Gospel over, and over, and over, and over again. Why? Because it's worth standing up for. Why? Because it is so easily lost. It's been said in different ways over the years. One person said it this way in relation to a denomination that had started out, oh, so committed to the Gospel. Now is an unfaithful denomination. They said it this way. They said the first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel and thought that there were certain social entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel and advocated the entailments. The third generation denied the gospel and all that were left were the entailments. Others have put it more simply by just saying the first generation believes and proclaims the gospel. The second generation assumes it. And the third generation loses it. It's so easy to lose. So we will unashamedly Keep preaching it and teaching it and standing up for it, no matter the ridicule, no matter those who say they have already know it and laugh at it and that we're telling this old, old story again. Let us get on to other things. Let us talk about other things. You never get beyond the Gospel. A friend of mine who is a pastor and historian for our denomination, the PCA, I remember reading him a number of years ago where he was talking about some research that he was doing. And he commented about this. He said he stumbled across these different churches and he was looking for information about them. Information about Point Breeze Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania where Harold Ockingay was the pastor. One of the most famous gifted pastors of his entire generation. He said he was looking for information about Central Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga where Wilbur Cusar pastored another gifted pastor and congregation that was noted throughout the country. United Presbyterian Church in Wheeling, West Virginia where John Reed Miller served for a time, one of the founding fathers of the PCA. and Central Presbyterian Church in Jackson where R.E. Ho pastored another famous pastor. And he said, you know what all of these congregations, what they all have in common. And he said, quote this, they were all thriving, large, significant churches pastored by conservative, talented men, and they no longer exist today. They don't exist. He made this comment in summary. Now, the reason why these churches no longer exist are as various as the congregations themselves. Still, as late as the 1950s, they all were thriving congregations. And if congregational death can happen to these congregations, it can happen to my congregation. And it can happen to yours. Such Possibility was coming upon the church in Ephesus. And so Paul tells Timothy, You've got to stand up. You've got to stand up for truth. But he needed to do more than that, he needed to stand against as well. Now, not everything is a Gospel issue. Not everything needs you and I to speak to it. Not everything needs to be addressed in the moment. Look, there is wisdom and patience. Patience is a virtue. Long-suffering is a virtue. Listening and closing your mouth is a virtue. So not everything has to be spoken to. And not everything has to be spoken to in the moment. But when there is false teaching that is leading the sheep away from Christ is injuring the flock, then one must stand against it. And this was happening. It was happening in Ephesus. They were doing this by speculating about things from Scripture. Again, they weren't necessarily trying to lead people away from the Bible. They are very focused on the law they are very much steeped in going back to the old testament scriptures these false teachers but as paul points out their speculations they're clouding the clear teaching of scripture and what were these speculations? We don't exactly know, but it appears that there was some kind of Jewish element to it as they were going back, and they're looking at all the genealogies, genealogies of the Old Testament, and they're trying to plot them all out in different ways, and somehow that was married together, it appears, with some kind of maybe shadow of early Gnosticism, which would run rampant through the church within the next century where there is some kind of greater knowledge that everyone needs to have and to experience. And they were marrying these two things together, it appears. Regardless of what it was, all of this speculating was creating a cloud over truth. They were chasing after myths and genealogies, Paul says. And he says it's an abyss of error. He says that these speculations and the genealogies are endless in verse 4. That is, that there is no bottom to the depths of speculation. One just can keep falling into speculation after speculation after speculation. It's true in our day, there are different quarters of the church that are doing this. But maybe the easiest to point to is to go back to the scholastic age. It is often held up as. That great speculative age where the scholastics were filled with speculation about the Scriptures. It was often used as the illustration is that theologians and priests of the time would debate about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. And they would debate this. Calvin, who will follow the age of scholasticism, will speak about that often as being of no where no advantage is derived from such speculation. And he makes this comment at one point. He says, accordingly, the more learned a man is in it, we ought to account him the more wretched. This isn't a positive thing. You spend all your time speculating and imagining and discoursing about things that The Scriptures don't give knowledge of. Paul's making it clear. Such imaginative debating about the Bible and discussions about these things in Scripture, he says it's a waste of time. It's dangerous to the soul and it corrupts the church. I want you to notice that they're using the Bible. And any false teaching that has had any Kind of grip within the church. It always focuses upon the Bible. Every false teacher points to the Bible and has a better way for you and I to understand the Bible, something that we need, something that we're missing, something we're just not emphasizing enough, something that they are always an authority on. But as Paul says, God gave us stewardship. It is this doctrine, this good deposit. It has a purpose. And all of these speculations are distancing people from it. How is it distancing people from it? Because faith is not being encouraged. It's being discouraged. It's being clouded. Their teachings are causing disruption among the saints as there is conflict. He says, swerving from these, verse 6. They've wandered away, verse 6. They've gone into vain discussions, verse 6. Idle conversations. If our discussions about the Scripture and our teachings from the Bible don't edify, they are worthless. If they don't edify, they are worthless. Why is it? Why is it that people are so often in the church drawn to speculative theology? I think the answer is, is that everyone wants to be in the know. We want to know just a little more than everyone else. So that we're just just an eye level above everyone else. greatest sign of false teachers and false teaching is arrogance. It marks the teachers and it marks their followers. They know something others don't. They have it and others don't. Notice, these false teachers have in spades what Timothy didn't. They lack, quote, understanding, Paul says in verse 7, but that doesn't stop them. They make, quote, Confident assertions, he says in the second half of that verse. And listen, that's a good reminder today. You need that reminder today. Confidence is not the sign of faithfulness. It's not the sign. Social media and the web allows everyone to spout an opinion today. Be careful. Because those who are loud and so often confident are not the voices you are to listen to. More often than not, it's the loud voice is the voice you shouldn't listen to. We are such an incredibly silly people. We are often drawn to the articulate. We are drawn to those with rhetorical genius. We are drawn to those who are simply clear. Especially today, you need to hear this, and I need to hear this. In the midst of a, a culture and society, especially over these last few years, where it feels like everything is very unclear, it's those that come out clear, that are very black and white, and they are confident in their assertions that people are grabbing a hold of. As if being confident is the determiner of truth. Be careful. Confidence does not equal rightness. Beware of those who would promote their teaching as what is needed. Beware of those who get you more animated about anything else other than the gospel. It's the gospel that is center. It's interesting that Paul knew this was going to occur in Ephesus, uh, one of my favorite. Passages in all the Scriptures is Acts 20. He is passing by this area. He's not going to Ephesus, but he's passing by. And he spent two or three years with them there. And so as he's passing by, he calls these elders out to him to come meet him on the beach. And you have this wonderfully beautiful chapter where you have this long discourse where Paul is just pouring into these elders. And they get down on their knees and they are weeping together and they are praying together on the beach. And while He is with these elders in, in that chapter 20 of Acts, He will say to them, knowing that this is going to be the last time that he sees, to them, he sees them, He says this to them, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They're wolves. And Timothy, when there is a wolf, you stand up against it. You don't coddle wolves. You don't pet wolves. You don't even treat wolves nicely. You dispatch them. Listen, this is very relevant. Husband, mother, father, grandparent, friend, roommate, elder, deacon. When there is a wolf, you stand up against it. And you chase it away, or you kill it. Those are almost always marked by what Paul highlights in Acts 20. A desire to draw away the disciples after them. Teachers, leaders who put themselves front and center or loud, seeking attention, who like to keep their names before others, those are the ones you are to run from. I mean run from. if they are pointing you to them, if you keep hearing about them instead of Christ, where they are pointing you to be a follower of Christ, they're continually setting the Gospel before you because they are pointing you to Christ. If it is about them, they are seeking followers of them, as Paul says in Acts 20, you better run. They're wolves. Paul wants Timothy to dispatch them. Machin, the great Presbyterian minister during the 1920's when there was a the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy. Great bulwark of standing upon truth. Machin said this. He said, In such times of crisis, God has always saved the church, but He has always saved it, not by theological pacifists, but by sturdy contenders for the truth. R.C. Sproul used to call these battlefield theologians, willing to stand up for and willing to stand up against. But, as a mentor friend of mine has said, we're to contend for the truth without being contentious. or defend the truth without being defensive. There are things we're standing against, but let's be clear, as I heard one person say recently, we don't have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Because if we cast off the fruit of the Spirit and standing for truth, we actually show ourselves not to understand the truth. See, this is where we get, isn't it? You get to this point and you say, how in the world do we know? You got teachers that are relying upon the Scriptures and they're pointing to the Scriptures and they're saying, look, we've got to focus on this in the Scriptures how do we know whether this is truth we are to embrace or whether this is truth we are to stand against? How do we know whether this is true or not? And this is where Paul leads us. As John Stott pointed out about this passage, Paul provides two practical tests for us to apply to all teaching. The first is the test of faith, and the second is the test of love test of faith and the test of love. There's a double contrast here. There's a contrast between speculation and faith in God's revelation. They are speculating about the Scriptures. And then there is faith in God's revelation. But then there is also the contrast between having this sowing dissension that is happening by their teaching and the contrast of love for one another. And so what Paul is saying to us, this false teaching was leading to speculation about non-primary things. It was leading to controversy between members of the church. But do you see, what truth does is it always leads to faith in God and love for others. That's what it does. The aim of our charge is love, Paul says. It's love that marks true living true Gospel proclamation, true ministry, true faithfulness. False teaching brings division and rancor and speculations and dismissive attitudes towards others. It brings pride. The Gospel produces love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, Paul says. Now, Paul knows He knows what the response is going to be when Timothy rebukes these teachers. Timothy is going to rebuke these teachers for the way that they are approaching the law. And so the response is going to be, well, Timothy, you don't actually value the law. You see, you dismiss the law, Timothy. We're people of the Word. We're people of the law. So Paul... Addresses that at the very end. He anticipates their argument. He points out that if they have corrupted the law and made it something it wasn't supposed to be, is what they've done. Because, quote, the sum of the law, and we could say the whole Bible, is that we may worship God with true faith and a pure conscience, and that we may love one another. That's the test, and they're failing it. Their speculations and their genealogies are not leading to faith. They're clouding faith. Their speculations and their genealogy are not leading to love for the saints. They're leading to pride and arrogance over other saints. And Paul's saying, that's evidence. And he does this by taking the two tables of the law. He takes it by doing a rehearsing of the Ten Commandments here. That's why he gives the list of all of these different sins that are according to the law. Disobedience, profaneness, striking mother and father, murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality, slavery, lying, perjury. I think as many do that what he's doing is simply just taking the moral law. He's summarizing it by summarizing the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the moral law. And what is the moral law? It's these two tablets. The first tablet that Moses has, the first four commandments, what's it all about? Faith to God. And the second tablet, those last six commandments, what are they all about? Love for one another. Another way of saying this the soundness of our doctrine is judged by its fruits. And their teaching is not worth listening to because it doesn't produce the right fruits. The soundness of our doctrine is determined by its fruits. Too quick, just closing applications for you. Would you do me and do yourself a favor? Just be careful who you're listening to. Be careful who you're listening to. live in a day where I think so many people in the church are being discipled more by podcasts and their social media and little two-minute clip videos than they are relying upon the week in, week out, proclamation of the whole council of God. Shock jock theologians are a dime a dozen. Be careful who you're listening to. Are they who you're listening to? Are they increasing your love for Christ? Are they continually pointing you to Christ? Or do you find that they're pointing you to something else? Just a degree off. Do you find that they're animating you about Christ? Where your affection in listening to them is stirred for Christ? Or is it something else? Do you find that by listening, to the people that you're listening to, that you're increasing in love for the saints? Or do you find that you're getting more "Mm," with your brothers and sisters in Christ who just don't understand? The true teaching increases faith, increases love. Do you be careful who you're listening to? Second, be willing to stand up for eternal truth and support those who do. Not everything is worth fighting for. But this is. The Gospel is. There are times that you and I are to brandish our sword. There are times that we are to stand up and be counted. There are times that we are to exercise our voice. And that can be incredibly hard. It can be hard in the family. It can be hard among your friend group. It can be hard in the church. It can be hard in the denomination. So for those that you know that are facing such conflict and are standing up and standing against, would you support them? Or you give them your prayers and you give them your encouragement? Because it's not easy. But it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because Christ is worth it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And because the sheep are worth it. To be faithful, but to be willing to stand up for the gospel and stand against those that would tear it asunder. Do you pray with me? Father, we do pray that You would keep us faithful in our generation, that You would use us as members of this church as ready instruments in Your hands to spread the good news of Christ, that we would not wander off into vain speculations and pride and things that are just a degree of pray that You would keep us close to our Savior and close to the core of our Christian faith. That we might be, as it were, a city set upon a hill as a congregation. That each of our lives might be, as it were, a city set upon a hill. Would You use us? And would You keep us? We pray this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.